Well, good morning, church. It is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I hope that you, like me, are just already excited. It's wonderful that we can gather and that we can praise the name of Jesus and that we can also hear about things that are happening all over the world and that we as a body can be excited together. These things, this is what we're meant to do. These things are meant to excite us. They're meant to help us see that, that we serve a God who's alive, who's still moving, who's still saving lives and changing uh, eternity. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, I am so blessed to, to get to share this message with you this morning. Um, I was thinking, I was reflecting a little bit as I, as I prepared for this, because we've spent a really, really, really long time in First and Second Samuel, if you guys, you know, really think back on it, we really started this about uh, about a little bit after COVID started, and so it's been a good long while that we've been in First and Second Samuel, and we're actually only about six weeks from uh, from wrapping this up. And so uh, it was interesting as I was as I was thinking about that, and thinking about all the things that we've seen in. Uh, and the kingdom of, uh, of Israel as they come together and asked for a king and Saul was appointed over them. And then ultimately, as we saw uh, David come onto the scene as the one who would be anointed as the next king, it's interesting because the place that we find David now coming out of last week is not all that different than what we spent looking uh, at David in the past, right? He was anointed king and yet uh, through no fault of his own, uh, he was persecuted by Saul, and so he fled into the wilderness, and he spent much of the time that we spent talking about him in the wilderness, running from Saul. And when we look at it now, we kind of find him in the same place. He has fled. He's being hunted this time not by Saul, but by his own son, Absalom. He is, and this time, before he was the future king, this time he is the actual king. He is God's anointed king. Um, and he, again, is back in the wilderness and fleeing and being hunted. But this time, he can't claim innocence in this conflict. In fact, it was his unwillingness to discipline his son Amnon for the rape of Tamar that caused Absalom to murder Amnon. And then it was his unwillingness to discipline Absalom for the murder of Amnon that led to the situation that we find ourselves in where he's trying to usurp the throne. But even before that, as we've looked at over the last several weeks, it was David's affair with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah that really set this whole course of events into motion, that set this, this culture within his family. Uh, we talked a number of weeks ago, and I was thinking about this, about, about the fact that David had amassed for himself, contrary to the Lord's command, all of these wives uh, and, and concubines, and, and, and how it must have been that, um, that he had let this sexual sin dominate his life. And so it's no wonder, it's no wonder that his, his son followed in his footsteps and, and raped his sister, and that all of these things uh, came to play. But I want to remind you, because I think it's helpful when we take a look back to kind of see God stands behind what he says. I, I want you guys to turn with me back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to take a look back before we take a look at what happened this morning. If you look at 2 Samuel 12, uh, after, uh, after Nathan the prophet had come to David as the messenger of the Lord to bring to light his sin uh, with Bathsheba, 
In verse 10 and in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, it says, Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes, and I will give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. And you see, even though he was forgiven by God for his actions, right? The Lord said he would not put him to death. And that for him and for us is a great and undeserved mercy. It's something that, that we don't deserve this kindness from God and neither did he. But even though he had been forgiven, it did not separate him. And it doesn't separate us from the consequences of our actions. The truth is that we live in a world that is governed by rules, and it's governed by order. And in that world, actions have consequences. There are no choices that don't have consequences. Some choices are small, and they may have a small impact, and they may not be immediately visible, but other choices are large, and they have a devastating and obvious impact. And at this point in the narrative, we are in the midst of the fullness of the consequences of David's actions. You see, like we already said, David had, he's fled. That's what we read in the previous chapter. He had fled out of the city. He got word that Absalom had amassed this army in Hebron, that he was headed back to, to, to Jerusalem. And so he fled the city with his household. Absalom has come into Jerusalem. That's where we kind of finished up. Uh, chapter 16. He's coming to Jerusalem. He's likely in David's own house. And then, according to the counsel of Ahithophel, if you guys remember where we finished up last week, Ahithophel said, you know what? I've got a great idea. This is exactly how we're going to make it clear to everybody that you intend to be the king. Why don't you go and make a tent on the roof of the palace, and then you sleep with all your father's concubines in light of the whole city and then they'll know. They'll know that you have made yourself a stench to your father was his, was his words. And I can't help but see how that exactly comes to light what Nathan had promised David. He said, for you did this thing secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel. And in the sight of the sun is where he shall lie with your wives. And so according to Ahithophel's counsel, Absalom does that. That's where we end chapter 16 and I want I just want to remind you of one thing and then we'll move into looking at chapter 17 in the very last verse it says now in those days in 16 the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God so was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and Absalom you see this man when he speaks it was so full of wisdom that everybody listened this doesn't mean that the things that he spoke were righteous. It doesn't mean that the things that he spoke were exactly God's words, but it was as if the Lord had spoken them because when he spoke, there was so much wisdom in what he had to say that everybody heeded it. And so that's where we find ourselves in chapter 
17. And so we're going to read this in just a second, but would you, would you pray with me? Would you pray with me first? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we are able to gather in this place, that we're able to open up your word freely and read it. And Lord, that you've revealed to yourself, yourself to us in it. Lord, there is no mystery in what you want us to know. Lord, you've laid it out plainly in the text. And so I pray that you would help us to faithfully dig into your word, that you would give us open hearts and open eyes and open ears to hear from you, Lord, that you would speak in this time through your word and through me, uh, and that you would help me to be faithful to the message that you have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going we're gonna to kind of break this up a little bit because this is a big chapter. Uh, and you'll notice also, and I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance, Pastor Aaron has left and given me a passage full of difficult to pronounce names, and the longer the chapter gets, the more difficult the names get. So on the front side, we'll be all right. When we get into the back side, uh, you're just going to have to roll with me, and we're going to pretend this right. So you don't know them, and I don't either, and uh, you know, there we go. So let's start in uh, chapter 17, starting in verse 1, and I, I want us to, to look and see the providence of God in these passages. So chapter 17, verse 1, Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and I will pursue David tonight, and I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. And I will strike down only the king, and I will bring back all the people to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and the elders of Israel. But then Absalom said, call, Hush call Hushai, the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, and Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken, shall we do as he says? And if not, you speak. And then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel of Ahithophel has given is not good. And Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the fields. And besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the pe people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go into battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, no one will be left. And if he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and will drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So let, let us first take a look at the providence of God. And I, I want to be clear, if there's nothing else that I want you to see this morning, that it is absolutely the will and the providence of God that protects David 
in the passage that we're going to look at today. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And I I believe that this applies absolutely to would-be usurping kings. It really applies to all of us. The Lord turns their heart where he wills. And we can see that in what happens as Ahithophel plans. We were already told in chapter 16 that Ahithophel's wisdom was esteemed. This was a, a wise man. And even in his outrage and his hatred for David, and even in his desire to see David brought low, his words are correct. I think that's key to understanding the first part of this passage here is that as much as we're rooting for for Hushai, who is sort of David's agent in this place, and against Ahithophel, Ahithophel's counsel is good. His counsel is right. He says, David, he's, he's weak. He's on the run. We should go out after him right now and attack him. Uh, he, he is proposing the the, the tactical right strike. He says, we're going to go out. We're going to get only the king. We're going to kill the king and all the other people. Guess what? They're going to follow you after this. He's weak. He's on the run. He's not in a good position. In fact, if you guys remember from what we looked at uh, in the previous chapter, he's, he's right in the wilderness on the edge of the Jordan River. And so there is literally nowhere for him to go. He wouldn't be able to make an easy escape. And if they went out right after him, they, they would likely get him. And so this is, this is Ahithophel's guidance for Absalom. This is what you should do. And it's so amazing, right? Because we look there in the chapter and we see right there in verse 4, everybody was like, yep, that, I mean, Ahithophel's wise. This sounds like a great plan. Let's do this. And yet, what happens? Everybody's in agreement. Everybody says this is wise. We should do that. What is it? It says exactly and then the advice seemed right, even in Absalom's eyes and in the elders of Israel. And yet, what we see is that God is orchestrating the events that take place in this passage. And instead of taking Absalom's advice, Hushai, who David sent back to Jerusalem in chapter 15, I want you to remember he came out after David, right? His, his cloak was tattered. He was barefooted, and David said, look, you're going to be a burden to me. What I want you to do is I want you to go back to Jerusalem, and I want you to go to Absalom, and I want you to say that you'll serve him. And he does. He goes back to Absalom, and what, what happens? Absalom immediately, and rightly, questions his loyalty. He's like, you, you were just serving David, my father. Like, Am I to believe that now you want to come and serve me? And yet, Hushai was able to convince him that he does want to serve him. And so instead of following this good counsel that was given by Ahithophel, and by the way, I, by good, I don't mean like righteous. I just mean it was, it was accurate. It was the thing to do. But instead of following this wise and good counsel, which everybody agreed is right, instead Absalom calls to the court Hushai. And that's where we get to see that Hushai objects to what Ahithophel plans. It's so interesting because Ahithophel's plan is concise. It's, you know, it's very matter of fact. It is, let's go out and we'll do this and we'll have victory and everything will be excellent. And then Hushai comes in and spins this long tale. And if there's one thing that I know from almost 15 years as an investigator, it is that when the tale is long, we're a long way from the truth. Right? The longer the story is they got to tell, 
the less likely it is to be the truth. And so that's what Hushai does. He, he, instead of this concise plan that Ahithophel comes with, Hushai gives this elaborate plot that seeks to play on Absalom's fears. He plays on his fears because he says, well, they probably have already gotten themselves in such a good defensible position that, and you know how strong and mighty your father's men is and how they're valiant and they're probably really mad because they've been driven out of their city. And so it starts to play on Absalom's fears, these things that Hushai brings up. And then it also starts to play on, on his uncertainties, right? Because he says, you know what? Do you really know that your men are, are going to stay and fight? Probably what's going to happen is that David is so entrenched, you're not going to find them. And as soon as any of your men start to fall, the word is going to spread through all of them that David's men are strong and they're killing everybody. And even the bravest of your men are going to desert you. And so he plays on his fears. He plays on his uncertainties. But then he ultimately plays on his pride. He said, do you know what you should do instead? You should hold a draft. I mean, that's basically, that's basically what it comes to. You're going to go from Dan to Beersheba, from one part of the kingdom to the other part of the kingdom and get everybody together and they will fight. And by the way, this part of the plan would take weeks or months to actually make happen. And then when you get them here, you're going to lead them yourself. You're going to go out in front of this mighty army, Absalom, and you're going to lead them into battle like the triumphant king that you are. And we're going to utterly conquer everything that, that stands in our way of us and David. We're going to kill David. We're going to kill everybody. And if they take hold in some city somewhere, we're going to tear it down so that there's not even a pebble left. And so he seeks to play on Absalom's fear, and he seeks to play on his uncertainty, and he seeks to play on his pride in order to undercut the counsel of Ahithophel. And what we see, if you guys flip with me there, let's see. Well, I have to flip. You may not have to flip. Uh, and, all, and Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. And this is amazing. This is, I, 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 I can't, put it into words for you because this is absolutely the providence of God to see that this man who is so wise, so precise in his counsel, so esteemed, is undercut by Hushai, somebody that Absalom doesn't even have any reason to trust. Somebody who really has given them bad advice. In fact, we're going to see how bad this advice is in the next chapter as Absalom does go out with his army uh, to try to hunt down David because it becomes... Clear that he should have heeded Ahithophel's advice. And so we see that Ahithophel plans and Hushai objects, but ultimately it's the Lord that thwarts this plan. We can see it in the rest of verse 14. It says, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm. To Absalom. The man who was most esteemed in Israel, his counsel is undone by Hushai. Why? Because it was the will of the Lord to defeat Ahithophel, to bring harm to Absalom, and ultimately to protect the king. I would draw your memory back to what we just read in chapter 12. God had promised that even though David was going to feel the consequences of his sin, he would not die for them. 
And we're going to see that God is not done accomplishing what he desires from David's time on the throne, which leads us to the opportunity to look at the protection of God. So we looked at the providence of God. Now let's take a look at the protection of God. As we're getting ready to see, the protection of God occurs not just in thwarting Absalom's plans, but also in the many people that the Lord will work through to accomplish his will and to preserve his king. Take a look at verse 15 with me. And then we get into some more names, and then we'll get into some even more later. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, Do not stay overnight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel, and a female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Baharim, and who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, and they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water, and when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. And after they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. And they said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. And then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. And by daybreak, not one who was left had not crossed the Jordan. If you remember, I just want to catch you guys up on who some of these characters are. Back in chapter 15, when David was fleeing the city, the priests Zodak and Abiathar had come out, right? If you remember, David and his household had had left the city and they had stopped at the edge of the city and all of his household was passing before him on their way out into the wilderness. And here comes Zodak and Abiathar with the ark. And David says, no, like, look, we're not going to take the ark with us, right? We're not going to take the ark with us out to battle. We're going to leave the ark here, so take it back. And perhaps the will of the Lord will be such that I will return and I will get to see the ark again in its place. And so he sent them back. And then he also told Zodak and Abiathar that they should take their two sons with them and that he would wait by the Jordan River for the word to come from Ahimaaz and from Jonathan about what he should do. And so this sets up the position that we're in now as we, as we read this text. And, and you can see that what's happening is the messengers are about to go to David, but where is David? He is waiting by the water. Can you imagine can you imagine what it must have been like for David? Ousted from his city and his throne, waiting in the wilderness with the livelihood of thousands of people in his hand, just waiting on the Lord to move and for word to come through these messengers. And we see in that God's protection of the spies, the protection of the spies. When you stop and think about it, this plan is dependent on so many people that God's hand of protection has to be all over it for it to even have a chance of being successful. The list of spies that God is protecting is long. 
We already talked about Hushai, who was able to undercut the counsel of Ahithophel, who was able to gain the confidence of Absalom and, not, and wasn't put to death. Uh, Zodak and Abiathar, the priests, again, I, I have to believe that Absalom wouldn't have trusted anybody probably at this point that was in the city. Uh, and so he would be watching everybody. And so also the young woman that's able to take word to them, they had to use this young woman as what the text says to pass word from the priests to their sons who were waiting outside the city. And again, they're waiting outside because I have to believe all of this is against a, a backdrop of what must be a pretty close to a total lockdown. If, if I'm Absalom, I'm not letting people in or out, and the Bible is clear, and it says that nobody should see them entering or exiting the city, and so they're camped out outside the city waiting for this messenger, a young servant girl, to take it from their, from their fathers, the priests, to them so that they can take it to David. And all over this is the protection of God for the people that he has in place. And ultimately, I have to believe that Absalom is probably having everybody watch because we see evidence of this right here in this passage when uh, Ahimaaz and Jonathan are spotted, right? The, it says a young boy spots them. And look at what the text says. It says he, he spots them and he takes word directly to Absalom. So this young man sees these two guys hanging out outside the city and he goes directly to Absalom and says, I saw two guys hanging out outside the city. But that's what, that's what happens probably is the level of of paranoia and the level of lockdown that's happening in this place. And so Absalom sends, sends someone out to look for these boys, and we begin to see the protection of the messengers. Being aware that they've been spotted, they move to a different place. They go to, uh, they go to this man's house outside of the city in Baharim, and this man has a well. And again, I, I just I want you to be careful to see the supernatural protection of God in these passages. We could gloss over these details and we could just read them at face value, but, but God working in his way to protect his people and to advance his will is all over this because they come into this house where there's a well in the courtyard and they go down into the well and most of the scholars believe that it must have had to have been dry in that season for the well to have been empty enough for them to go down into it. And so they go down into this well and then Something out of a cartoon ensues, right? I mean, like, look at what the text says. It says that the woman places a covering over the well. And this word that she uses or that is used here for covering is like a piece of linen or a piece of cloth or a piece of animal hide. So she drapes a rug over the well, scatters some grain on top of it, and then like stands in the corner and whistles, you know, and pretends that nobody can see it. I mean, that it's absurd, at face value, and yet God uses this situation to protect his messengers because when the men come from Absalom and they're looking uh, for, uh, for the sons of the priests, they don't really ask her a lot of questions. They just ask her if she's seen them. They kind of look around, and then they go about their way. And when she points them to the brook where she says they are, again, they don't look very hard. I mean, look at what the text says. It says that they, they uh, and when they had sought and could not find them, they return to Jerusalem. So these men that come out looking for these messengers and these spies are easily deceived, ultimately don't find them, and then they just return to the city. And so we can't help but see God's hand of protection on these messengers. And so after the men leave, the messengers come up out of the well and they go to David in haste. 
And they bring the message of both Ahithophel and Hushai's counsel. I want you to see that there in the text. They say, this is what Ahithophel said. This is what Hushai said. And this tells us that they probably didn't know exactly which, which counsel was going to be followed at this point in time. They, they didn't know what action Absalom was going to take. And so they bring both messages, and David is able to, to take action, to get to bring his people to a safe place. And so we're, we begin to see the way that God is also providing for the protection of the king. I want you to recognize the moment that he is in. This is that moment when things seem darkest. On the edge of the wilderness, thousands of people in tow, waiting for word from Jerusalem, wondering what's going to happen. We can relate to this if we stop and think. There, there are these moments in each and every one of our lives where things seem dark, where we don't know and can't see immediately how God is going to be able to deliver us, and we have a choice. We have a choice of whether to trust that He will deliver us and to wait for His deliverance, or we have a choice to, to do something else. And it's in this moment where things are the darkest for David, that we begin to see the dawn break and the events begin to turn. And although it's not clear exactly what God is doing, it is clear that the Lord is still on David's side. And we see him able to get his people across the Jordan as he begins to prepare for what is next. And so we've seen the providence of God. We've seen the protection of God in this passage. And now we get to look at the provision of God. There's no doubt in my mind as I've looked at this text that God has been ordaining the events that have taken place across this entire chapter. But as we look at the last six verses, we begin to see that David was right to put his trust in the Lord. If you remember, as we looked at chapters 15 and 16, that was really the theme. As David exited the city and he faced all of this persecution as he was trying to see what was going to happen with Absalom, that was his disposition as one who is waiting on the will of the Lord and trusting that whatever God wills in this situation is what will come to pass. At the core of this is David's understanding of who he is and who God is. And I think there's wisdom in us learning from that. You see, David realized if what the Lord wanted to bring on him was death and judgment for what he'd done, then he deserved it. I mean, that was his position. He could see clearly how he had caused all of this. And so on the one hand, deserving of judgment. On the other hand, hopeful. Hopeful that God, in a way that none of us can deserve, would bless him. Would bring him back to being king. At the core of this is David's understanding that if the Lord wanted to remove him from his throne, he would be just and he would be right to do that. Just like the position that we stand in. If the Lord wanted to condemn us, he would be just and he would be right to do that. It is what we deserve. We deserve. But also, if the Lord wanted to bring good on him, that would still be in keeping with his character. 
And if the Lord chooses to keep David as his king, to be his rescuer, to shower him with mercy, then he will praise him all the more. This isn't a posture, I want to be clear. This is not a posture of apathy. This is not a posture of, I just don't care what happens. But one that realizes that all any of us deserve is death and hell and judgment for every uncountable act of treason against the God of the universe. And so anything other than that is an amazing kindness. It's an abundance of mercy and grace. So let's, let's take a look together at the way that God provides for David. So look with me in verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, and he went off home to his own city, and he set his house in order, and he hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. And then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. And now Absalom had set over Amasa over the army instead of Joab. And Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite. I told you we're getting into the names here. Who married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And I just want to break that down for you because I had to draw this out to figure it out. But that makes, that makes Amasa, the person that Absalom puts over his army, the second cousin of Joab, the person that's over David's army. So just I'm filling you guys in so you don't have to work it out for yourselves. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. And when David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash from Reba of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Brazilier, the Gileadite from Rajalim, brought beds, uh, basins, and earthen vessels. Wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese from the herd for David and all the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. And so as we begin to look at the provision of God for David, first and foremost, I want you to see that God provided a solution for the problem. Really, the biggest problem that David faces in this situation outside of Absalom's desire to usurp him is the fact that he had the counsel of Ahithophel. And we've already seen how wise his counsel was previously, as well as how wise his counsel would have been to follow in this incident. And so we've seen how his hatred for David over what happened with Bathsheba has caused him to abandon his place. This is Ahithophel in David's court and begin advising Absalom. And this creates problems for David because of the wisdom of his counsel. This is counsel that would have likely resulted in a devastating and drawn-out battle that would have been costly to everyone involved. How does God solve this problem? Not, not in battle, not with secret assassins or plots, but by answering David's prayer. If you guys remember, back in chapter 15, David prayed that God would turn all of Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. And what we see here is the answer to that prayer. Not, not in that what he had to say was foolishness, but that nobody was willing to listen to him. And this ultimately becomes the undoing of Ahithophel. He, he can't stand that nobody would listen to his counsel or take his advice. And all of this was solved with prayer. Not with schemes, not with effort, but with prayer. How often are we willing to pray this way? 
with confidence that God is going to answer and then just wait for his response. That's what David did. He said, just turn everything that Ahithophel has to say into foolishness. And God was faithful to answer that prayer. The problem is that we lack the patience and the desperation to just wait on God to move. And we ultimately end up deciding to take matters into our own hands, to bring about our own answers to our prayers. But that wasn't an option for David. He didn't have a way to bring about the answers to his own prayers. Fleeing his city, people in tow, waiting in the wilderness for just some word about what was happening, he had no choice but to wait for the Lord to be his provider. And all of Ahithophel's wisdom and persecution of David was undone in the likeliest of way, unlikeliest of ways. Seeing that his counsel was not heeded, he went home, put his house in order, and hung himself. And God provided a solution for the problem. And now we get to wrap this chapter up by seeing God provide rest for the weary. Ahithophel is defeated. David and his clan have crossed the Jordan. Absalom is in pursuit of them, but while Absalom sets up camp out in the land with his men, David and his people take shelter in the town of Mahanaim. And, and another unlikely event takes place. These three men show up. Men who I'm not going to try to pretend to read their names again. Uh, these, these are not God's people. These are just men and Take some time if you have some time this weekend and look up these guys. These are just men that David has probably interacted with in one way or another during his first time in the wilderness. And so seeing David and his people flee, these men come from afar and they bring an abundance of provisions, beds, vessels for water, grain, honey, cheese, sheep, and on and on this list goes. The, re the reason this list is so long is one, because it's the stuff that they brought and everything in the Bible is true and we can depend on every word of it. But two, the reason to list it out is so is so abundantly clear. This is as exceedingly more than anything David could have needed. It is, it is literally all of the provisions for his people, for the people who were on the run and weak and weary, they're now able to rest. They're able to fortify themselves in this town. They're able to eat and drink, and they're able to gain their strength as God sets them up to be his agents in the resolution of this conflict. And we can start to see how this situation has gone from bleak to hopeful in only a few verses. And woven every bit through that is the will of God as we start to look, and we, and we did look at his providence, his protection, and his provision for his people. And there's only one thing outside of those things that we could possibly even need in this life or in the next. Outside of his providence, his provision, and his protection. And that's his propitiation of the wrath that's due to us. That propitiation is a big word. It just means the appeasement of the wrath that is due to us. In fact, one of, one of the uh, places I found that explained this in the most succinct way was Easton's Bible Dictionary. And it says, that by which it becomes consistent with his character and government to pardon and bless the sinner. The propitiation does not procure his love or make him loving. It only renders it consistent for him to exercise his love towards sinners. So in this, we're saying 
The single greatest thing that any of us need is not for God to be loving. He is loving. That is his character. What we need is something to change our status, to appease the wrath that he sees when he looks on our sin and to make it possible for him to look on us with love and not with condemnation. And that's only possible by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that might seem like an odd transition to you as we were looking at a passage looking at King David and the persecution by his son and the protection of God. But the last thing that I want you guys to see is that in the council of Ahithophel, God provides us a glimpse into the future. Take a look back with me at the very beginning of chapter 17 where we started in the back half of the second verse as Ahithophel was giving his counsel. He says, I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. You see, Ahithophel's advice is basically this. There's only one person that's causing all of your problems. It's, it's King David. And so let's just kill the king, and then all the people will return to you. So if we fast forward almost a thousand years, there was a king who came from David's line, preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins, one who ate with sinners, tax collectors, outcasts, performed miracles, constantly befuddled the religious leaders, bringing to light their self-righteousness, their hypocrisy, their self-exaltation, and he caused many to question their leadership, and his name was Jesus. And not only was he a king, but he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and the only one who was able to offer forgiveness of sins. And rather than accept what he was offering, what was their solution? Let's take a look at what God's provided us a glimpse of. Would you flip with me to John chapter 11? And we're going to look at verses 48 through 53. And this conversation that occurs between the chief priests and the Pharisees, they were gathered together. And they said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest for the year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And so we see, we see this theme, this theme that one man should die rather than the people. It was Ahithophel's council, and a thousand years later, it was the council of Caiaphas that, that Jesus should die, rather than that the whole kingdom should come to ruin. And so we're left with this interesting thing to ponder. In both situations, there was persecution of the rightful king, and a plot that he alone should die rather than inflict harm on the whole nation. And yet God rescues David. 
miraculously and by his strong hand, delivering him from the plot against his life and setting him back on his throne. But Jesus is delivered over to death. Why? Because of the will of God. Something that we saw ever present in this chapter, weaved through every moment, ordaining everything that took place. It was the will of God to keep David on his throne until his purposes were accomplished. And as for Jesus, the prophet says in Isaiah 53, exactly what God's will was. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide his spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, God, he still intended to do the same thing. Even in this passage, he still intended to set the rightful king on the throne. Just the path looked a little bit different. For David, it was restoration through the wilderness and the death of his son that we'll see next week as we take a look at chapter 18. But for Jesus, the way to the throne was the cross and the grave. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And that's, as, as devastating as that is, that's good news. I want you guys to know that. It was God's will to put Jesus in the spot that he could appease the wrath that is due you and me and that he could look on us and where he once saw sin, he can see righteousness. He can see his children. As Kevin and the band comes, that's the good news that I want you to hear this morning. Even in this story where we saw so clearly God's provision and providence and protection for David. He's doing the same thing for you. Believer... He's doing that in your life. As we look at the way that, God, that David desperately prayed for God's intercession and he sat and he waited for God to move, I ask you, where are the areas in your life where you need to be waiting for God to move? Where instead you're trying to move yourself, where instead you're trying to change your circumstances, where we need to be dependent on God waiting for him to move, waiting for him to protect us, waiting for him to provide for us, and waiting for his providence in, in our lives. It's so much more beautiful. When we look at this story, I mean, you, could, you can see ways where David could have took action on his own, but instead we get to point wholly to the glory of God as a way that he moved in these circumstances, and the same thing can be true for you. If you're willing to wait on the Lord, if you're willing to depend on him, if you're willing to hope with confidence that he will move according to his will. And so, believer, that's my, that's my challenge for you as we close. Examine your heart. Think about the areas in your life where you're not depending on God's provision and his sovereignty. And if you don't know Christ, there's nothing better that I can tell you today. 
there is hope. You don't have to stand in front of God and be put to death for the uncountable things that you have done that is treason against the God of the universe. You can be forgiven. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. But that made a, an offering, a payment for your sins and for mine. We have to accept it. He stands ready to offer forgiveness, to restore your status before the Lord so that God can see you as children and not as enemies. Thank you.